Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Cale Guthrie Weissman, the editor-in-chief here at Modern Retail. And this week, we have Michael Barlow. He's the co-founder and CEO of Furnish, which is a furniture subscription service company. You've been around for a few years. I want to get into just both your growth and also the overall space of renting furniture, paying a monthly subscription fee, and dealing with all that, because it's fascinating to me. Um, and I know that you guys have you know, been expanding a lot over the last few years, and I want to get into all that. But Michael, how are you doing? Thanks for joining. Kale, super happy to have this scheduled, and big fan of the podcast. So great to be here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Um, so first, for those who don't know, tell us about yourself. How did you end up in, in the furniture subscription space? Yeah, or just the home home goods or okay, home services. Okay, yes, I apologize. Space. I think it, if you would have if you would have known me five years ago, Kale, and told me that I would be running a furniture service, I would have called you absolutely crazy. <laughs> um, my background, you know, prior to this, was at another startup, but very much in a, in an intersection of media and technology. That was a that was a passion of mine. Um, coming out of college and 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 throughout my first uh, layers of my career. I think at the end of the day, I really do see myself and many of the entrepreneur friends I have in my network as just problem solvers. You know, what problem have we confronted in our day-to-day life that creates so much headache, hassle, and, and cost in many ways that just needs to be solved? And here with furniture as a service, I became really passionate about solving this problem. And you know what, as I've, you know, this is our fourth full year of business, uh, 2022 now. um, And it's a pretty complicated problem to solve. (laughs) I think we've learned more and more and more every year since we've been in business, but it's definitely been exciting too. Whenever I talk with people in the furniture and home goods space, I think that what I've always forgotten is that furniture is heavy. And I think that that is like very difficult when you're doing a digital service. And so I want to talk about all of that. Um, but can you, how did, how did the idea first come? What was the, the initial light bulb? Yeah. I mean, uh, the honest story is, is it's all about a girl <laughs> <laughs> for me. Um, you know, in early 2017, my girlfriend at the time was considering a move from Chicago to to LA. You know, we had met in New York City. Um, I had moved to LA to do some, you know, a startup thing, not furnish. She had moved to Chicago to go to business school, and I was a little sick of doing long distance. And I, what I like to say is, I wanted to give our relationship a chance, um, and so I wanted, you know, oh, I was recruiting her, quote unquote, down to move to to Los Angeles. Um, but so much of that conversation around the logistics of moving in together and moving cross country again, because this would be both of our, her second move to a different city, came down to buying, owning, moving, selling, storing furniture and physical assets in general. Like, why is that the case? You know, the product and sometimes the quality doesn't align with who you are at the time, where you're living, the roommate situation you have, and pretty much everything in between. And so why has the industry of furniture not evolved to meet the expectations of today's consumer? And you can call that flexibility, you can call that convenience, you can call that sustainability. Those are the pillars that we've defined our business around, which really marries the service economy and the subscription economy to a very legacy and old asset class. And so honestly, the the genesis of the business came out of those conversations with my girlfriend at the time. You know, how that story ends, Kale, and maybe too much information is she did move to LA, 
we worked it all out. We got well, married. That's good. It's and, a happy ending. You know, now we ha- now, yeah. Now, now, now we have a son um, who's the light of our life. And uh, we also have a thriving business. So it's uh, it's a nice end to the story. But that's definitely the genesis. So can you tell, has the initial idea, the initial business model remained the same since 2017? Or how has that evolved? So we actually, so we launched the product in summer 2018. And we spent a lot of time validating that this wasn't just a problem for ourselves. It wasn't just a problem for me and my girlfriend and all of our like initial close circle of friends. This is a problem that's indicative of the apartment renter in urban metros that's moving every one, two, three years between finishing you know, college or secondary education and ultimately, quote unquote, settling down. And Kale, like, what does settling down mean anymore? Like, when does that even happen? Especially in a world of remote work, like settling how settling down and home ownership and getting married is just happening later and later. And so having that level of flexibility and not being forced to own physical assets before you need to or might even want to is really what we do at the core of our business. So at the end of the day, we've seen our business evolve, I'd say logistically and technologically. But the actual value proposition that we provide to consumers has not changed. And the mission of our business, which out of the gate was to make it effortless to create your home, has also not changed. Um, I think we've been able to stick with that over four years now and continue to continue to deliver on that promise. You know, logistically early on, we had a lot of kinks to work out. But now that we're coast to coast and servicing many major markets in the U.S. and have a really deep team and a lot of experience on that team, we've really been able to to satisfy that customer promise, which just, it feels great. It's funny, right before you, you got on this, I was talking with our producer, Sarah, and I've just moved. And I was talking about how much I hate moving because I have a two-bedroom apartment's worth of stuff. And so, like, I see what, what you're talking about is very true. And I moved last year, and it was truly the biggest hell to move twice in a year. So um, it is it is certainly, and I don't know how it would ever get easier unless I were, you know, had a subscription service that would give me and take away my furniture, which I don't think is going to happen anytime soon. But maybe, I don't know. Anyway, all I'm saying is that, like... <laughs> well, I mean, you tell me, you tell me, Kale. I'm, I'm, I, we're happy to set you up, of course. And I do think what, what, what our... Our customers have have given us feedback on throughout their own process of setting up a new space or a home and the process of moving in general is that there's a huge amount of costs. Like you're talking about moving around different boroughs in New York City. There's a lot of costs there, but moving from New York to LA is 10 times that cost, I'll tell you. Um, and it's way cheaper just not to have to move anything. <laughs> and then also... The yes, you say furniture is heavy. Yes, furniture is heavy, and so you know that's why you know you hire folks to help you with the process. Um, and then your taste and your spaces change, and your roommate situations change. There's so much, um, there's so much that's progressing in your life. Like we we want to be a service that progresses with you. I wanted to ask, uh, and this is sort of a segue into I was listening to some old interviews with you, and I thought this was kind of a funny story, and so I wanted to ask you about it. But the, the initial sourcing of your furniture, because sort of your differentiator is that you have nicer furniture, a lot of mid-century modern, higher-end stuff. And I heard in this interview that you gave a handwritten letter to the CEO of Crate and Barrel. Is that correct? Sent a, sent a handwritten letter to to his family office, yes. So um, what was that? And like, and talk to me just about how you went about that initial sourcing of these products and how you conceived of it. Yeah, this was all part of like the, the discovery process of 2017, I'd say. And it came down, speaking of podcasts, like we had heard Gordon Siegel, the founder of Crate and Barrel, actually started Crate and Barrel with his wife. We'd heard him on, on how I built this. 
you know, Guy Raz's show on NPR. And that was in, in, like inspiring. And like, how do you, how do you get in touch and, and try to tell your story? And he's actually become a close friend of the business and advisor of the company. And we have regular contact, uh, regular communication, which is, which is, which is really helpful. Um, and, and exciting in many ways. Um, sourcing has evolved for the business. You know, we now at this scale, we have contract manufacturing relationships um, and we self-design a number of our own products, um, which is not how we started at all. You know, we prioritize North American manufacturers now. And so a majority of our products are actually coming from North America, um, which again, isn't necessarily how the business started, but it's how the business is tracking and, and ultimately where we want to take the business. Um, for a number of reasons, what supply chain constraints, timing on shipments, the sustainability that when you don't have to pay ocean freight, holy smokes, you're saving a lot of carbon emissions. Um, on top of this core model that we have around reuse and recycle and refurbish. Um, so that kind of all ties into the, you know, the ESG story of the business too. So what is the average, le- so let's say I'm moving next, would I be able to get a sofa next month or next week, sort of what is the lead time and how much do you have in storage just waiting to be sent out to someone who's going to use it for, for their next apartment? Yeah, Kale, great question. So we promise everything you see on our site, deliver, assemble the range for free within a week, um, which we think is pretty special for this industry, where if you get something custom made, you know, off the floor in West Elm, you could be waiting eight months. Now we're able to do that a couple ways. I think we only have so many core products. Like we don't offer 10,000 products. We offer a couple hundred and we offer a couple hundred because we can go really deep with our suppliers um, and our manufacturer partners on core SKUs. They know how to manufacture them. Our teams know how to assemble them. Our teams know how to disassemble them. Our teams know how to reupholster them or clean them. And we've built that in-house expertise to be able to provide really quick turnaround times because in our mind, it's customer expectation. Amazon's trained us for two to three day delivery, if not same day. And so the furniture industry, again, has never, has never evolved for a couple structural reasons to meet that. And, you know, on the foundational level, we like to call it internally a game of furniture Tetris that we play, you know, because we are a, we are a company that's built on reuse and refurbish. We know exactly in a given city what products are coming back to us from, you know, customer A, B, C, and then going out from Kale to Sarah. Like we can turn around products in a couple hours from lightly used to either like new um, entirely or like kind of what you can Frankenstein a piece. You can put a new top on a table. Like everything from our supply chain is parts-based replenishment. And so again, it's how we've set up the business structurally to enable to to enable ourselves to deliver on that one-week customer promise, which has been a lot of work and a lot of learnings and a lot of operations, but we're, we're happy to be there. How did you go about building out that supply chain? Because you started, correct me if I'm wrong, working primarily with retailers, right? And so that's a, that's a very different type of relation than actually having your own stuff manufactured. So what was the process of building that out you know, nationally? It was a lot of process, a lot of time, a lot of energy, and hiring a lot of great people who have done this before. You know, our director of sourcing uh, and merchandising was 20 years at William Sonoma Pottery Barn. You know, our our vendor relations team comes from Wayfair, where they have you know decades of plus experience working with global supply chains, knowing everyone in and around the furniture industry, knowing the conferences to go to, knowing who we need to talk to, and how we for our 
unique business model, which is purpose-built around a circular economy and ensuring that all of our products are built for rental use and durable, modular, refurbishable enough to really enter our supply chain, I think, again, we've had four years as a business, which isn't that long, but we have decades of experience in the category by the team we've hired. When we started it, you know, it was myself operating out of a garage in Venice, California, um, that I filled with furniture and I slept uh, somewhere else because I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't fit in my own garage anymore because um, it was filled with furniture. Um, we've obviously it's, it's evolved a lot since then. Can you talk a little about sort of growth, how, how that has gone over the last few years? And I know that you've you've done a city by city expansion, and so how have you chosen where you're going to expand? How have you made it so that it was feasible, so that you would have a full offering in those cities? Yeah, I you know Kale, the growth story of our business is actually is actually one of the more exciting um, things we can talk about. I mean, we've been, I think the, the Inc. Magazine rankings for, you know, fastest growing private companies in the U.S. actually just came out this week, you know, and we're the 250th fastest growing private company Congrats. in the U.S. We're the, we're the 18th fastest growing company in retail, retail brand in the U.S., which is, you know, based on hard revenue and, and really exciting for our, something our team can rally around in many ways. Um, but in terms of process, the way we think about expansion is we want to make sure that the demographic overlap really is aligned with our with our uh, our product and our service. And so you can find a lot of data publicly out there, but then you also can talk to our like you know thousands and thousands of customers. You can talk to them about where they're moving, where they moved from, where their friends live, and you can get a really good sense demographically of where this product and service is going to fit. And you know that's really informed starting in Southern California, expanding to the Pacific Northwest, the major you know Seattle area, then expanding to Texas. There's been huge growth trends to Central North Texas, you know anywhere from Dallas to Austin over the past few years, and then the East Coast kind of core metros of of, of New York and Washington D.C. with parts of New Jersey, parts of Virginia in there, um, have been consistent growth. Uh, have seen consistent growth profiles of our core demographic. And so we've been able to validate that pretty methodically over the past four years and stamp out that expansion plan accordingly. So can you, you say your core demographic, I have an idea of what it is, but can you just say exactly who, who is your core demographic and was it what you expected it would be? Yeah, it's a, it's a fair question. You know, at the time, I was like, I'm my core demographic. My girlfriend <laughs> was my core demographic, you know, late 20s. Uh, moving, you know, across cities and still renting apartments. I think that that has maintained our our, our core demographic um, in a pretty meaningful way. Um, you know, twenty two to thirty five year old you know, living with half a roommate is sort of the average for us. Um, and kind of a one bedroom apartment is really really where we see. And what we see people doing is tying the lease of their furniture to the lease of their their space, whether it be in LA, you have single family homes where you put four or five roommates at a time in. But in New York, that's not as popular. I mean, maybe, maybe, in, maybe in certain parts of Brooklyn where you live, but uh, in in Manhattan, absolutely not. Um, and it's been a good. That's what we always expected in many ways. You know, the apartment renter, the home renter, um, and what we do offer in our core just service offering is actually pretty nice. 
if you, you know, you can rent to return a product or you can rent to own a product. And so we actually show you your ability to build equity in a side table, a sofa, a lamp, a bed frame, a mattress, like whatever you're renting from us, that counts as equity built if you ultimately want to own that product. And the difference that you pay, if you do decide you've fallen in love with this, you know, queen bed frame and you've paid 40% of it, like, okay, you can just pay the other 60%, boom, and it's yours. Like, we're really transparent about that. That gives customers, in our experience, a good deal of peace of mind in terms of they have that optionality. Um, So it's a little bit different than apartment renting, where you don't actually build equity and you never actually own an apartment. Um, You know, and what we see from our customer base is, you know, a portion of the products that everyone signs up for uh, more or less are returned and then another portion are are leased to own um, on the product side. So that flexibility is something consumers certainly take advantage of. Have you, so how long have you offered lease to own? Since we started. I mean, consumer feedback at the end of the day said that we want the optionality, but 70% of people, if you ask them out of the gates, you know, do you want to own this product or do you just want to return this product? 70% of people say, I don't know. How do you expect me to make a decision? Like I just signed a a 12 month lease in Dallas with two roommates. Um, I don't know where I'm going to be in a year. I don't know if like who's going to want this six seater, uh, you know, table in a kitchen or this L-shaped sectional. Like, is it going to fit in my next place? I don't know. So again, it really future proofs the decision. Um, for consumers, which again is part of our core offering and value proposition. But you were saying most people do end up returning it in the end? It depends. Like people do a mix of things, a mix of things, which is exactly what we want at the end of the day. We want to be that flexibility engine where you're not forced to commit to something out of the gates, but you have the option to later. How do you go about the sort of figuring out what the product selection is? I can imagine that a 27-year-old living in Dallas has a different sensibility, though maybe not exactly different than someone who's living in Manhattan, specifically size-wise. Like, you want everything modular if you're living in a, in a tiny Brooklyn apartment, but you can go a little bit bigger if you're going somewhere else. So is that, like, what is the process by which you figure out what are the best tables or, you know, or what are the best sofas? And do you have, are your warehouses in different locations stockpiled with a different selection of goods to, to tailor to those customers? Yeah, it's a, we had a lot of learnings here, Kale. And did you know that, People in Dallas really prefer the color blue on pretty much everything. Like we didn't know that, but now we do. And so, like, <laughs> if you go to our Dallas, you know, uh, our website, when you filter it for all the Dallas inventory, you see a lot of blue on the <laughs> upholstery side, and that's just something we learned. And so, yes, you're going to see a lot of more sectional sofas in Texas um, and Seattle, actually, compared to New York. And it's just the the footprint of a apartment is very different in both of those markets. And that's, again, something that we can make educated guesses around early, like pre-launch. But then as data starts to come in and you're doing hundreds of orders in a month in a given market, you really start to see where interest and inventory skew. And then you can continue to build from there. You know, overall merchandising strategy for us has has taken a similar kind of localized path, uh, but we have a great experience on the team from a merchandising perspective, you know, whether it be Williams-Noma Pottery Barn Wayfair or Herman Miller. Um, and then, you know, the Crate and Barrel team actually early on has been good, you know, good thought partners for us on what resonates with an audience. And we like a lot of the stuff actually that CB2 is doing. Um, and so we actually do still work closely with that brand. Um, and 
that's been a good, you know, that's been a good learning experience for us as we've gotten up that curve. How has product expansion gone? Because I imagine you mentioned that you only have a few hundred SKUs as opposed to a few thousand. I imagine you only started with a few, maybe some sofas and stuff. How have you how have you approached that and what is the best way to methodically do that? Because as we've said many times, furniture is heavy. It also takes up a lot of space and storage. And so it, you know, building out logistics for something you're not sure people are actually gonna rent might be is probably very difficult. Yeah, it's definitely you want to be nimble on that on that front, I think. You know, we we've continued to selectively expand our our kind of core SKU set, again, based on local tastes, but our core value proposition of being able to offer products in seven days sort of by definition means we're never going to offer 10,000 sofas. Like we offered 25. And I think for our customer who sort of wants an easy button, like you have more important things to do than figure out and spend 16 hours thrift shopping and then building furniture or taking a train out to Brooklyn's Ikea and then spending a whole weekend building that. Like you have other things to do. So if you have an easy button that says, this goes with this, goes with this, goes with that. Then we see people take advantage of that. You know, we have a collaborative filtering mechanism on our website on our item de- detail pages, which you'll see. It's like a room builder where you go to our popular sofas and then you scroll down right below the fold. It says, here's a room layout, like based on this color scheme. Change the color scheme. And it's a really cool AI tool that, boom, automatically repopulates the room around that core sofa might change the color of that sofa, but then you can add it all to your cart with one click and then choose which pieces come in or out. And so we've built that over the years in response to customer demand, saying, like, can you just tell me like what's gonna go with this uh, you know, this rug and this coffee table? And it's like, yes, we absolutely can. And you don't need to go to 15 different sites. And we can do that with only a couple hundred SKUs. We can make fewer SKUs actually seem plentiful. Because it's what customers want. They don't want analysis paralysis. They don't. They don't want so many options that they're. It's impossible to make a decision and then forced to evaluate pricing from here to logistics and in, and and shipping timing from there. Um, and again, really simplifying the whole furnishings process and then adding that layer of of flexibility in line with that convenience is what we just felt the industry needed. Makes sense. Is this only uh, an you know? enticing to people in urban locations? Like, do you, do, when you reach every major city, what do you do next? I think something that I've learned about the furniture industry is it's just, it's very big and it's very fragmented. Um, and you can build a very big business and a very big brand and deliver on a, and deliver on a great, a great promise for consumers while sort of not even becoming more than a drop in a bucket in the overall industry and I'm not going to say that that's our, our goal is only to be a drop in the bucket, you know, but you can do hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue and just be a drop in a bucket in a $120 billion industry. So we're not looking to like uh, conquer the world and be a service for everyone. We're looking specifically at our audience who, in our estimation, spend $4 billion plus dollars every year on furniture. And those are apartment renters top 15 cities in the U.S., people making a certain uh, income level and people between 22 and 35, like that's 10 plus million renters. And we think those are core audience for us. And we want to scale and start owning that audience in a pretty meaningful way. 
And even if you're dropping a bucket there, it's hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's a pretty exciting business. Um, so yeah, the long answer to your question, Kale, like, yes, I think our service might work well in other markets. And we have an expansion plans to, let's say, South Florida and Chicago and Denver. And those are definitely on the radar and definitely coming soon. But at the end of the day, we don't need to be in the top 150 markets in the U.S. to build a meaningful business. Like, shoot, when we got our 100th customer here in Southern California, I was stoked. I was like, 100 people chose Furnish over like the established categories? Like, this is an amazing day. Um, celebrated with a White Claw, probably. <laughs> as, <laughs> as, as one should do. As one does. Um, I, I wanted to ask about, uh, I feel like a lot of, like, Recently, over the last couple of years, like sustainability, specifically in furniture, has been a big marketing point, a big pillar for a lot of companies. You talked about it earlier, and that's, you know, something that is intrinsic, I guess, in the business model of Furnish specifically. Are you noticing that customers are are leaning more towards that or looking for those types of, you know, quote unquote, sustainable solutions as opposed to maybe before when you first launched, it was just about ease and the fact that they wouldn't have to haul all their furniture? Yeah, Kale, it's definitely a value proposition that resonates with folks. The whole notion of, and this is where North American sourcing has started to be prioritized for us because of the carbon emission from international freight. But our core, we're a business that's built around product refurbishment and reusability. And that's definitely resonated with customers. I think there's, you know, we're able to, at the end of every year, we put out a sustainability report saying, based on our reuse and refurbishment mechanisms, how many pounds of furniture have we saved from landfill in the past year? And, you know, last year's report, we saved over a million pounds of furniture from landfill via reutilization. And that's something we're super proud of. Um, that's a big stat. That stat's obviously grown a lot this year, but we haven't done, you know, the 2022 report. And every one of our customers contributes to that, and that resonates with them. And we actually, when we send out that report every year, we get a lot of positive feedback um, from customers. We send to all, you know, a full listserv um, from our CRM, and it's a uh, we get a lot of positive feedback. It's a it's a it, it it's a feel good in a way, and I think it's important for brands in the 21st century to to have an authentic and genuine kind of mission that has. A sustainability component. And I think we've seen that more and more driving upwards from smaller startup brands like myself, like driving upwards to the bigger brands who are now trying to embrace and figure out their own strategy there. But I think it's been really exciting and uniting for our team to have that component out of the gate, be able to message that crisply to our customers in an honest way, and then continue to build on that foundation. I wanted to ask about the overall home goods space because it's been, it was on a rocket ship a couple of years ago. It continued growing. Now it's in sort yeah. of a, a weird space. And like, I'm sure most companies can't match the growth they saw in 2020 and 2021 for, for obvious reasons. So what are you seeing in terms of, you know, the, people talk about how, you know, we're in different economic times than we were a year ago. People moved or they, you know, they brightened up their interiors because they had to because they were working from home. Now things are a little bit different. So what are what are you seeing specifically from your customers in terms of that kind of growth or that kind of consumption shift? Yeah, it's, a, it's definitely on our mind because of the trends and the reporting and the like Wall Street comps for the big box furniture retailers year over year are really tough. Um, Wayfair specifically and pretty much everyone else in between. I think our core customer, again, is we know who they are. 
and we know how to market and target you know them accordingly and from our perspective the overall like recessionary resistance has actually proven pretty pretty resilient at least you know the data that we have is from like june and july which is really when kind of media reports started to happen but i can tell you june was our best month ever um a little bit stronger than july in terms of new business added um and then july was our third best month ever <laughs> so i think we've we've continued to see strong growth and demand from our core audience. Again, it's different. Like our core audience is very different than Wayfair's core audience, which is very different than Ashley home stores and Ikea's audience. There's some overlap in there for sure, especially maybe with like the West Elm. Um, you haven't seen their, their second quarter report yet. I think it comes out this week, but that that's more of our core audience. And honestly, the Williams-Sonoma guidance for the year has actually been pretty strong. Inventory management is another story. Like, when the furniture factory shut down and everyone pulled back in 2020, I think we saw a huge overbuying in 20, late 2020, 2021, just to ensure you had the, the inventory. And now there's been so much like pent up inventory that it's like this whiplash in the supply chain, um, which I could talk about way more than I'd like to. And you see a lot of that with just Target, for instance, who overbought and that's very public. You know, for us, I think we, we, have seen a lot less of that simply because our business is predicated on North American manufacturing relationships that are more nimble than huge overseas relationships and bulk orders. And a good percentage of all of our orders that go out the door are through refurbished and replenished products that are coming from someone else. And so we kind of have this insulation a little bit. Um, and again, we're not operating nearly at the scale of someone like a Wayfair or an Ikea or an Ashley's, but you know, there's some parts of our business those two specifically that I mentioned that give us a little bit of insulation. And then our core customers may be a little bit impacted differently than other customers are in the marketplace right now in home goods. Makes sense. I wanted to ask just in terms of expansion and customer acquisition. So how, how have you found what, what has been working? What hasn't been working? Are, do, you have, do you have a general playbook that when you go into a new city, you blast them with Instagram ads, you're on TikTok or whatever? Like what, what, what are you finding is reaching your core demo um, so that they actually learn what you are and you know, subscribe? Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely evolved here too. And I think the whole world of direct-to-consumer marketing, we could talk ad nauseum about how that's evolved and how the platforms have kind of limited one's ability to scale super effectively. Um, I think for New York, for instance, we wanted a nice out-of-home component when we launched New York earlier this year. And so we did a subway takeover of West 4th Street by NYU and Washington Square Park. Same thing in Union Square. I think Union Square is actually still up, um, which has been really effective for us in bring, building like an awareness halo. Then obviously you have the, the digital components on top of the more, let's say, traditional out-of-home components. We did the same thing in Washington, D.C. too, but just on buses. Same thing in Texas, but just on billboards. And so we like to couple those two um, where you see this audience being you know, made aware of your brand and your product and your value proposition as you know in a couple different places. Um, but Instagram's obviously been big for us as it is for many direct-to-consumer brands. You know, search... TikTok's actually risen pretty well for us. I think we we've built a good. They're also, they're they're US teams based out in LA, so we have like some some nice hand holding on the account coverage perspective because our marketing team knows their marketing team, and it's been it's been great to just test with them. Um, 
But I think another avenue that's really emerged well for us is actually partnering with uh, multifamily real estate, multifamily real estate operators who see all the mobility trends of apartment renters moving in or out and are able to recommend our service to folks moving in and out and around their community and provide referral codes and discount codes. And that's actually been a great growth driver for us, especially over this year, um, kind of this real estate acquisition angle, which kind of when we started the business, we didn't really understand that or what that could be. But as we've evolved as a company, we, we, we understand that you need some other elements to your acquisition strategy to really be effective outside of just traditional digital marketing. And we think we have a very strongly resonating value proposition to the renter. And we've talked about this in a couple of different ways, Kale, but what's another way, we thought of other ways to get in front of, uh, of the renter where you don't have to count on just digital marketing. And so that's something that we've come up with and has actually started to work really well. I want to go more into that because that's fascinating. Do these you know, real estate companies you work with have they worked with other companies like yours on a marketing front or are you sort of creating these programs from scratch? And how did you, how do you figure out who works best with you? Which are the ones that have your target demo? How, how did you grow that program out? Yeah. So we've hired on the ground account managers in each market to understand like here are the city, like here are the zips, here are like the, like is Bushwick Brooklyn work? Does, you know, Rye New York work or does the Upper West Side work towards Greenwich or Greenwich Village? You know, that's kind of the New York comparison. But in LA, it's, you know, the most popular neighborhoods for us are very much West Side LA, Santa Monica, then West Hollywood, then Echo Park. And you understand, okay, here are the zip codes. Who are the operators and owners of the apartment buildings and complexes in those areas? And how do you get in front of them? And so you can get in front of them on a local level or you can get in front of them on a corporate level, depending on like who owns or manages the building and property. And, you know, it's a bit of a methodical approach on that front, but we've come up with the right program that I think makes sense. If you think about when you move into an apartment building, what are you doing? You're signing up for renter's insurance. You're signing up for cable. There's a whole checklist of things that you're doing. But what you're really thinking about is how am I going to make this space a home? How am I going to make this space, you know, a home that reflects something I'm proud to show off when my family or friends come over? And that's how we're sol- we're solving that 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 pain point for you. And so it's actually been a not an easy conversation, but a conversation that's understood when you talk to these the you know the multifamily industry o- overall because they want to be a value add to you as a resident, um, because then you're likely to either stay longer or move into another one of those communities or bring your friends in, you know, and have a good experience because at the end of the day, every company is focused on maximizing the customer experience. In their case, it's the resident. In my case, you know, you can be a resident, but you're my consumer. So it's been a, it's been a, a I call it a, a sell, a sell, a sales cycle or a pitch, what, what have you. But it's really resonated because it's easy to understand. You know, what is a, what are what are people thinking about when they're moving into a new space? Absolutely. Well, we're just about running out of time, but I always try to ask this before we end. But what are what are your major goals for this year? Is it city expansion, product expansion? What are you thinking about? And what are the things you need to accomplish in the next year or two? Yeah, I, there's so many things. I think we're always trying to constantly improve our operations, consistently improve our technology, optimize the acquisition funnel, continue to leverage st- smart strategic partnerships to, you know, to augment our brand. Um, 
I think we are a, you know, we're a venture back startup. And I think the world of venture back startups, uh, the narrative has sh- shifted in a big way. And so we're focused on, you know, operating margin profitability in every individual market by the end of next year and like other things where financial discipline really matters. We understand the levers there. So it's, you know, so that's, that's an important thing to, to understand as a business. But, you know, a year ago, Kale, I would have, I would not have even brought that up. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, now I think that discipline is probably good for the marketplace um, in general. Um, because if we're giving stuff away for free, obviously consumers are going to take it, you know, for, uh, you know, for our business, I think understanding that the, the confluence of pricing and value propositions are really important. Um, and so we're, you know, we're, we're pretty focused on that right now as well. Well, Michael, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate you joining. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks again for thinking of us, Kale. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week.